Yes, it's the place to be for all things franchising. Hello, everybody, and welcome. The name of today's topic is one that's close to my heart and everybody's life, I think, eliminating fear. How to remove the stranglehold on your business. We'll be sharing a lot of great information with you on that. As you know, at Franchise Simply, we're committed to ensuring you're well-informed about all relevant topics in business and in franchising. Overcoming fear is one we, we talk about a lot. So it's great to be with you again. And uh, I'm pretty excited because my celebrity guest today, I've been pursuing since last July. A couple of hitches have happened along the way. So it's great to have him with me and be someone I know will surprise and inspire you. Just a quick reminder, though, to make sure you've got a pen and paper ready, because I guarantee you want to make some notes and we'll refer you to sources of information later as well if you'd like to come back to them. So for our members, remember this will be up in our members vault where you can access it any time through our system. So basically today, I'd like to uh, say announce it. I've got Glenn Carlson. Glenn is someone that a number of you would know. I know that a number of my members actually are, are active or looking closely at Glenn's programs. Glenn's the co-founder of Dent Global, together with Daniel Priestley. They run a structured accelerator program. It produces, I suppose, to produce entrepreneurs that stand out. And they really do have an exceptional business model. And they certainly make a positive impact everywhere they go. Dent Global, if you don't know them, they're most famous, I suppose, for the book that they, they have that's really been, uh, been a big seller, Key Person of Influence Program. And that's available quite freely in lots of sources. Been acknowledged by Inc.com as one of the top personal branding conferences in the world, the conferences they hold. And, and get this, in the last seven years, they've expanded to the UK, USA, Singapore, and Australia, published over 800 books for their clients, and built an epic full-time team of 50 people across 12 time zones. So there we are. That's quite extraordinary. They actually had three acquisitions of their own in the technology area, in media and publishing. And they're becoming a one-stop shop for business owners that want to accelerate their entrepreneur's journey. Glenn is a high-profile expert. He's been featured on Inc.com in the Financial Review, Sky Business News, Entrepreneur.com. He's in constant demand, um, as my eight months of patience waiting to speak to him uh, proves. His podcasts are classics. I really recommend. They're short, concise, and really full of valuable information. And they are consistently in the top 100 in Australia. And his Facebook page is a very popular spot. So, Glenn, I hope that's given you a bit of a snapshot of your story. Is there anything you'd like to add? Um, oh, mate, I just wanted to, uh, to add my gratitude and thanks for such a, a wonderful introduction. And, and thank you very much for having me on the show. That's, that's a pleasure. Just tell me, um, I mean, I, I've researched uh, and people perhaps know a little bit about your dent history the last seven years. But what got you there? I'd love to know, you know your, back, your background and what got you into that space. Well, I, I suppose if I go all the way back, probably one of the most pivotal ideas was from my kind of early childhood. My dad was a shipwright in the Australian Navy, um, so he built boats for a living, joined when he was 15. And when I was about four or five, he went to my nana and he said, look, I love, I love my wife, my mum, I love my son, love the family, I even love my work, but I feel like something's missing. And my nana said, smart uh, smart thing that uh, that she was she passed last year but uh, she said at the time she said if you were on your deathbed looking back and instead of everything being awesome there was one big regret that you had for not doing what would it be and quick as a flash dad actually said it would be not sailing around the world with my family 
And so my Nana looked at him and said, well, what would you do if you weren't afraid? And that was the catalyst for what became a seven year circumnavigation where I left when I was six, got back when I was 14. Um, so a very, very different way of, I suppose, seeing the world, but I'll, I'll always remember those two questions about looking back from your deathbed to, to explore what I'm doing now in my life and am I on track or off track based on that context? And then the question, what would I do if, if I wasn't afraid? And so I uh, started applying those kind of ideas when I was very young. So I spent about a few, a few years working, not a few years, sorry, a few months working at McDonald's. And very quickly, I thought this is a, this is a mugs game. I'm being paid pittance and being worked like a slave. My dad said, the only way you'll ever get paid good money is if you're fixing bigger and bigger problems for people. You know, his experience was fixing boats. So it was very practical. So I took that very practical line and started uh, a marine detailing and underwater search and recovery business. So I'd scuba dive down and find people's lost Oakleys and, and things like that. But they were long, long, hard days making good money. Uh, the first month, I think I made about three grand as opposed to my 300 bucks working at McDonald's. So I kind of thought I was the Mark Zuckerberg of my time, um, <laughs> about 15 at the time. But that kind of sparked the whole concept that while my dad built a boat to sail around the world, I, I realized that instead of working inside someone else's business, I could kind of create my own vehicle, which, which ultimately became, became business. But the hard physical labor wasn't any fun. And, and so I went and I spoke to a lot of the very successful boat owners who were my clients at the time. Uh, and all of them said business, all of the getting into business, which I already was, all of them said, if you want to get off the tools, learn how to sell. And they, they said, if you learn how to sell, and more importantly, if you learn how to sell an idea, rather than just a product or service, that's where you want to do your apprenticeship. So long story short, worked with a company uh, that was promoting conferences and events. They were doing a pretty bad job. Both Dan and I thought he was working in the same company. We were best mates from high school. He's written the book, Key Person of Influence, and now uh, quite a few others. And we thought we'd go out on our own. So at 21, we started a company called Triumphant Events. And we would promote authors and speakers, people that were very, very good at what they did, but weren't particularly well known in their industry. So we would strap a, a sales and marketing engine around them. We'd help them craft a pitch that was more representative of the real entire value that they had. We'd help them develop products that weren't just their time. Uh, we'd help them create partnerships and alliances, but we'd just work with one client at a time. We'd put millions of promotional sort of dollars behind them and we'd, we'd build, you know, quite substantial uh, campaigns and programs. We expanded to about 10 million in revenue in year three. Then we expanded to the UK. And so we got very good at positioning people in, in their industry. And I guess that was where we got our experience for then discovering, I suppose, our secret source where our most valuable asset wasn't the business model that was achieving those results. It was the intellectual property and the insights we had around helping business owners really develop their own influence in their industry through the sequence of steps and processes that we'd kind of refined over that decade. And that's where both the key person of influence program and subsequently the dent brand and really cultural philosophy kind of expanded from there, helping not just one person at a time, but now over 3,000 alumni have, uh, have graduated our accelerators from around the world. So I guess it was, you know, 
they say success doesn't happen kind of overnight. I feel like it's been a bit of a staged event all the way through since I was about six years old, I guess. Excellent. That, that's absolutely fascinating. It just goes to show the sort of life experiences that go to form an entrepreneur. And I can see, obviously, the background of your business model. So you've overcome challenges. You've helped a lot of your clients, your alumni, overcome challenges, 3,000 of them, I think you said. So what are your tips for overcoming fear? Because that, that's the human default, isn't it? That's the saber-toothed tiger that's looming outside or adjacent to every decision we're faced with. So how do you recommend we, we, uh, we as business people and as individuals overcome that? Yeah. So I think the first thing that I think about is that um, fear is perfectly natural. It's perfectly healthy. It's perfectly normal. It's designed to keep us safe. It's not a bad thing. It's you know a, a, a reflex that has evolved over millennia to protect us, right? So whenever I feel fear, I kind of try and acknowledge that, okay, that that's okay. Um, that's uh, just, you know, nature uh, letting me know that what I am approaching has potential risks involved, right? There's potential downside or at least there's perceived uh, potential downside. So the fear, if, if you can kind of emotionally observe or if you can objectively observe, if I, sorry, let me make this personal, right? When I objectively observe what the fear is doing, as a signal, just like the, the, the oil or the fuel light on, on my dashboard for in, in my car goes on, like I don't freak out when the fuel gets low. I'm like, okay, that means I need to do something. I need to go fill it up with fuel, what have you. So I think the moment that I recognize fear, the moment I get some objective distance from it, I'm no longer controlled by the fear and I can see it as a tool. So I think that's step one in terms of an important tip. You can't fight fear any more than you can fight, you know, the, the oil light coming on in your, in your car. It's natural. It's normal. Don't ever expect it to go away. The moment fear disappears from your life is the moment you're not doing anything new, unknown, challenging. You know, it's that whole staying inside the comfort zone type of a deal. So fear is a good signal that you're growing, you know, and cliche, if you're not growing, you're dying, etc. So that would be step one. The second step is, uh, okay, this fear is telling me that either there are risks or there are perceived risks. So some could be real and some could be imagined in my mind. So what I like to do is just grab a notepad and go, what, what are my worst case scenarios and what are the facts? Like what, what, what is this fear coming from? Because often the fear might just be coming from the fact that you know, I don't know my numbers well enough, or I haven't spoken to enough people in the market, or I haven't done my research. And there's just too many unknowns for me to make a confident decision. And so I'll think, okay, what would I need to know more about in terms of the market landscape or whatever the case may be to feel more comfortable, not ever totally comfortable, but more comfortable in the decision. So, you know, maybe uh, that fear will, will then tone itself down from, you know, a paralyzing fear to a healthy awareness that I'm in a more of a higher stakes game that needs some management. The next thing I'll try and do is ask, what am I afraid of, right? So fear has evolved from the paradigm that I'm going to get eaten by a saber-toothed tiger. That's going to kill me and my bloodline. Uh, and so I should be afraid of saber-toothed tigers. Um, the fact is, is that the vast majority of stuff that I've ever been afraid of never happens. Um, and so I learned this from Tim Ferriss. What am I most afraid of? Um, by actually mapping out what is my realistic down, like worst case scenario for real, not 
imagine, but when I actually sit down with a notepad and work it out, like what is the stuff that I wouldn't be able to, a non-recoverable event that I wouldn't be able to recover from. Um, And the reality is my brain is usually coming up with some kind of crazy extrapolated worst case scenario that in reality with a little bit of logic, a little bit of preparing and planning wouldn't even be possible. I would be able to circumvent it, avoid it, change my approach well before, you know, the fire and brimstone would happen. So I find those three things, A, getting some distance from it, uh, B, um, asking what I'm missing, um, you know, where is the uncertainty coming from uh, and C, what is my real big downside that I'm imagining and when my brain connects that it's actually not that bad, the fear uh, dissolves and then I can focus and act. So, so when you run through that process, so that's a very simple system, but you're acknowledging that, I suppose. That's the biggest thing. I remember listening to an interview with Sir Alec Guinness, who passed away a few years ago now, but a prodigious actor, amazing in all spheres of what he did, whether it was comedy or Shakespeare. But he said, <clears throat> you know, a few times in my life, I've not been afraid when I've gone on stage. I've not had, you know, the butterflies. And I've known instinctively I was going to mess up. Because if I'm not cautious, if I'm not anticipating this bit of fear, this bit of nervousness, I know that I'm not giving attention to the job. And I think what you're saying sort of mirrors that, doesn't it? Yeah, I do. I have a philosophy that I think of regularly, which is discomfort precedes victory. If you think of any success or achievement that you or any of your listeners have ever experienced, some degree of discomfort was required for that to, you know, be a true victory, a true success or a, or a true achievement. And, you know, the d- discomfort is very rarely physical. It's usually an emotional discomfort. And that discomfort is usually just stepping outside of your comfort zone. And if you're not stepping outside of your comfort zone, like I said earlier, you're not growing. If you're not growing, you're dying. So I think he's right. You know, if you're stepping on stage and not growing, not pushing, not trying to go beyond what you've done before, then you, you're, you're getting lazy, you're getting sloppy, you know, and, and you're, uh, you're over the hill, I suppose, of your um, performance as a human being, I guess. Because, I, I mean, I, I believe we're here to grow, you know, and I believe we're here to contribute. I think those are the two big drivers that kind of make us, make us whole. So, yeah, I agree with him. There was a comment you made a while back that I saw, which was an interesting one, because it's all wrapped up in this fear, I think. Certainly our subconscious plays so many tricks on us that we're unaware of. But it was a comment you made that maybe you could expand on this, why, why we're not actually in control. Yeah, well, again, control is a choice. And so I think what you're referencing to is the fact that when I, and this is kind of coming from that whole fear thing, the latest research in, in neuroscience, there are three very distinct layers of the brain. Um, there's the oldest part of the brain, which is our neo, uh, sorry, our um, brain stem. Um, so that's kind of, you know, shorthand, the reptile part of the brain. It's fight, it's flight, it's freeze. It can't think, it can't really reference the past, it can't really reference the future. It's just instinctual in the moment. So, you know, that could be if your inbox fills all the way to the brim and, you know, your partner is wanting this and your kid's wanting that and all of a sudden you get a client that's got an issue and all of a sudden you blow a gasket and, you know, the reptile, <laughs> the reptile kind of comes out and snaps. Right? Now, often we'll snap at the path of least resistance, which is someone that we love the most because that's, that's kind of where the reptile goes or they're in easy snapping kind of distance and so we lash out but then of course you know an hour later after the energy kind of or the the heat cools out of that you realize that was a pretty shitty thing to do and the human comes in the neocortex comes in and 
you know, humbly apologizes and go, I'm sorry, that wasn't, that didn't feel like me. And to a degree, that's true. I mean, it's a lazy way of thinking about it, but to a degree, it's true. You know, it very much was the reptile in that moment. Then there's the, the limbic part of the brain, which is very much like the emotional center of the brain. Loves high highs, low lows, bright, shiny objects, loves the drama, wants the house in France and the fancy new car and all the toys and all the things. But again, both the monkey reptile have got super high survival needs. So while they, the reptile wants to be lazy, sitting on a rock, rock being fed passive income or like little flies just buzzing by <laughs> and it just gets to open its mouth and the fly drops in, like that's the ultimate fantasy for a reptile. Um, you know, the ultimate fantasy for a monkey is like the celebrity lifestyle, the highs and the lows and, you know, it loves a good terrorist attack and, you know, because that gets everything moving and the media and so the media really plays on these sorts of parts of the brain. However, Neither of them are very creative. So while they, the monkey might want the high life, it doesn't have the foresight, it doesn't have the creativity, and it doesn't have the risk tolerance because it, it hates and is petrified of fear and uncertainty that it would rather stay comfortable than getting all its dreams. So it becomes very good at rationalizing poor performance because the monkey wants the, all the toys but is very good at justifying and rationalizing why it isn't prepared to take the necessary actions to achieve said toys and therefore excuses rationalizations for poor performance etc there's the neocortex there's the human part of the brain which is what makes us uniquely us we can meditate we can pause we can reflect we can use rationality and logic to be able to mitigate risk and that's really that part of the brain that separates us from the zoo i suppose that uh, ray dalio talks about you know the separation of the two between there's the you and then there's the zoo which is all the monkeys and the reptiles and the you know our our ancestral evolutionary past trying to control us so from a business context i recognize that any given decision that has some degree of high stakes especially back to your first question anything to do with fear triggers monkey reptile behavior you know, triggers, I'm just going to run away. I'm just going to put my head in the sand. I'm just going to ignore. I'm just going to fight. I'm just going to get stressed and aggressive. You know, stress is a monkey reptile response, uh, which is just a signal of, you know, a, a fear uh, response that's not being addressed. It's the human that can then look at that and go, huh, isn't that interesting? What are we going to say or do? to solve that issue and, and then rationality comes into play. So it's just the recognition that the monkey reptile are by far more powerful than the human. They have vast um, reservoirs of override capacity. They control the parts of the brain that control cortisol, control oxytocin, control all of these core drugs that, that literally shape our behavior. And I think it's only the moment that we go in any given decision, we've got the monkey and the reptile that want to do everything they can to just decide what we do. And it requires us to have, I guess, human will and true will to self-reflect and observe on that often automated trigger and go, hang on a minute, that's how the monkey wants to respond. That's how the reptile wants to respond, but that's not how I'm going to allow the human to respond. So often, you know, just that extra one or two seconds of pause and reflection um, allows the decision-making to shift from the base primal fight, flight, freeze, or just to create drama to the actual human creative uh, force. So the recognition that you've got three decision-makers in your brain and uh, to, to make sure that you are consciously choosing the one you want at any given moment. And, you know, if ninjas jump through the wall and you're in a situation where you're actually being attacked by a saber-toothed tiger, you don't want a human experience. You want, you know, a, a reptile to come out in that zone and to either dominate 
um, or to get the hell out of there really quick. You know, you, you don't want a human being coming in and going, Hey, nice kitty. Uh, <laughs> and trying to, and trying to negotiate. So again, these, all these parts of the brain serve us, but often they don't serve us in some of the key business decisions that we need to make. You, you elaborate on that beautifully. You've got a, you've got a wonderful way with words there, Glenn, so I really appreciate that. So what we're sort of talking around here is the fight or flee. And I think what you've done from your experiences and the way that you know, yourself and your organisation have done is actually to be able to help business people address these things. So correct me if I'm wrong, but if you're faced with a fight or flee situation, what you're saying is you've got the resources. You say, hang on, I recognise what's happening we can overcome this, this is what I do, and I move into A, B, or C. You have a process. You grab your notebook and you write a few things down and you summarise. How do you look beyond that to say, well, actually, this is what I'm trying to do. You've got, a, you've got a, an outcome that you're trying to achieve in your mind, but you've got all these you know, floodgates in the way and so forth. How do you actually look forward and project beyond that? Well, I guess the, the, way, the way that we work is we kind of look backwards from a very, very big picture, very distant perspective. So, you know, our business, Dent, we want it to be a global brand like Nike is a global brand. So in the same way that Nike, you know, is for the athletes, we see Dent as being as iconic for entrepreneurs. Now, there are uh, significant differences in the size of our revenues and our brand cut through and all of these sorts of things. Um, so I think the most important thing is to have a, a very vague yet clear vision. Now, that's, that sounds weird, right? But I think when people create future visions, they're too often, I feel, too specific and it doesn't create a lot of flexibility, certainly for me. Whereas I like the idea that if I just get this vibe that far out in my future, now Nike's now in its 53rd year, right? So you know, if I'm 70, 75, which gives me a lot of time to screw shit up, right? It gives me a lot of time to get things wrong. It gives me a lot of time to make mistakes and learn all the lessons that I'm here to learn, etc. But if by the time I'm 70, I'm 80, you know, I'm, 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 lead, I'm still leading a, a company that is, you know, the Nike of business, for example. Um, that feels really great. That feels really rewarding. And I guess when I go that far in the future, it cuts a lot of slack for me in the present. I'm pretty hard on myself. And I, I guess I'm ambitious in the sense that I think ambition means you feel like you're five years behind constantly five years behind where you should be given this time on the planet. So, you know, mm -hmm. I kind of, I'm always feeling like I, I, I could and should be doing more. And that kind of drives me, that kind of gets me up in the morning, kind of go get after it, uh, that sort of an energy. So the, the first thing is, is just a very big picture, very broad. How do I want this to feel? And what's a very broad kind of concept of what I want it to look like in the future. Then we just go all the way back to, all right, three years. What 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 does that look like in the next three years? That's a big leap. I'm not a big fan of ten year goals. I love three year goals because people tend to you know have very big expectations for what they're going to do in the next year, but very low expectations for what they can do in three. Um, and because everything's changing so much, I think much better to have an umbrella vision of 30, 40, 50 years out and then get real tactical, which is kind of a three-year hit. And so then we break it down. All right, in the service of getting to that feeling or that vision, 
what would be the top three things? And we keep it super simple. Top three things that if we just hit, if the company achieved those three things, that would kind of account for everything else happening. So an example was three years ago, we said we wanted to win a internationally recognized culture award for our team because, I mean, we've got about 50 team across 12 time zones. So we thought that one goal would say all sorts of stuff about the business. It would say that we've obviously got a really good team on board that really like working to each other, but we've also got the governance and the processes to make them feel like this is an organization that's serving their goals, serving what they want to achieve, serving their vision for the life, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So by summarizing it all in something that instead of us having 30 different goals in terms of, well, this is how our culture is going to look, we could kind of sum it all up as one goal going, we've got a great culture award. And so one year ago, we actually were awarded that people in leadership award in the UK for the the kind of the work that we do with our team. And so that was really meaningful. And um, I think being able to break all the noise of all the different moving parts, you know, that need to be working in a business and, and how would you sum it up that if you could only pick three big, broad macro metric targets that you could hit and they go done, not done. Um, then I find that to be far better than trying to have, you know, 38 different KPIs that need to get hit. Then in year one, um, we go from three to nine and we now have more metrics and we have more KPIs that start to break down. Okay, in the next year, what have we got to start doing and building um, to move us in the right direction of hitting those three targets in three years? But I think it's that simplicity of going, What's the big umbrella? What's three things in three years that would kind of signify success? And then how do we break it down to nine things in the next year? And then, I mean, I won't, unless you want me to, I won't kind of go through into the real tactical stuff of how that breaks down to daily activity. But that 12 months breaks down into quarters, which breaks down into months, which breaks down into weeks, which breaks down into a daily whip of kind of what everyone's doing. And the idea is people can see the line of sight all the way through. So at the start of every meeting, we literally start with that 30-year vision and we remind everyone very briefly of what it is we're going to do so people can look at what they're doing today, this week, this month. Is it going to hit their quarterly? Is it going to hit the yearly? Is it going to hit the three yearly? And is that going to help us get the, um, you know, the big vision at the end of the day? So I, I love that. Yeah. I, I, I love those three macro targets. It just simplifies what otherwise is a horror job to have to try and do. And, and I get as well that that gives you the motivation, as you say, that cuts you the slack to get on with the current jobs in hand. So uh, we, we won't go into that any further now because people are interested in that, and I'm sure they will be, then I'll leave them to contact yourselves because I think you've got information you produce and you've got programs which can help people do that and, and information they can read as well. So we'll just move on with that one. But what I'd like to do before we wrap up, I know we could talk for hours, Glenn, and I'm sure people would find it fascinating, but I do like to keep to the 40 minutes and it's coming up soon. So I'd like to just put two or three questions to you if I can. Sure. Um, can you tell us about a couple of your sort of SME successes, the businesses you've worked with, the, the small to medium businesses like most of our listeners that you've had some, some success with that you think is, is notable for people as a good case study? Yeah, so I, I guess the first thing is the definition of success is very different for different people. But a lot of the people that will come and work with us, they've got great skills, talents, expertise, usually built over years or often decades, but they feel undervalued, unrewarded. So they're not being paid what they think 
all of those skills are, are worth. And they're, they're very active in their business. So they've almost become business operators as opposed to business owners. So I guess if that sets the scene, so often a, a very big win for our clients in general is being able to move from working, you know, again, a cliche, working in the business to working on the business, but also to have more industry validation to, you know, be actively recognized, incredibly recognized as a, as a bit of a mover and shaker uh, in the industry. You know, the author, the speaker, the commentator, not just someone that's grinding away in a business on the fringe of an industry. Uh, and of course, really well paid for all that as well. So our whole thinking is around Influence follows assets. What people are missing in their business isn't more skills, more knowledge, more education, more systems, more processes. What they're missing is the key assets. Like what, what, what needs to be built? So you know, if someone's not getting enough media attention, well, maybe they're missing a really great, well-written media kit you know, that articulates that value of well, why what they're doing is awesome. Um, uh, so you know, we look at it from that perspective. If people aren't getting cut through, maybe it's their pitch. Um, and the asset would be actually a pitching document that them and their team or a slide deck or a poster or anything that helps the entire company communicate that. So in the context of that, we've had some great success stories. One that comes to mind is an old friend and client of ours uh, called Darren Finkelstein. His original pitch was, I sell boats. So he was the dealer principal at uh, St. Kilda Boat Sales in Melbourne. And his entire pitch, his entire value proposition was built around, I sell boats and I can help you buy a boat, etc. And he was doing about a million in revenue. Uh, and I, he, he's actually done a podcast with me. So I'm not speaking out of school here. So if someone wants to Google Darren Finkelstein Dent podcast, it'll, it'll pop up. Um, he's doing about a million in revenue, but exhausted, burnt out, frustrated, having to work with clients that he didn't like working with because he just had to keep things going. And one of the first big insights that he had working with us through our sort of 12-month accelerator where we kind of deep dive for like a couple of months really pushing into the depth of how to improve the pitch is that it became very clear that there was a deeper value than just selling boats. In fact, what he has since subsequently become very well known for is not the function of his business, which was to sell boats, but it was the vital element of uh, reconnecting families and getting you know, men and families and their kids and their mates out on the water. So Darren really realized that it wasn't about the boat. Uh, it was actually about connection and time with the people you love. And so he's since gone on to publish three best-selling books on that very topic. He's become the industry speaker at all the boat shows. He's got a radio show that he's paid to deliver um, doing the Beach and Bay report. Uh, he's become an ambassador for a major marina uh, where he is paid a royalty fee to simply be the vision, the values, the value proposition. So really going from you know, earning money working in the business to truly being that key person of influence, I suppose, in his industry, which actually gave him the business to be able to, uh, the ability, sorry, to sell his existing business. So the reason I love that as a success story is because him building his personal brand meant he doing what he was great at and what he loved, which was connecting people out on the water. He became very well known for that. He started attracting a lot of clients because of that. He was able to go from him being the only sales port person to having a number of sales teams. He was out of the sales process and he could just come in and celebrate. But also, People often worry that, oh, well, if I build a personal brand, my business won't be worth anything. 
And, and what Darren was able to demonstrate is that's not true. So long as you build the key business assets as well. So not only do you, are you building that brand as the key person of influence, but you're able to build out the infrastructure and the products and, you know, very much like what people that are, are building a franchise would do, how to have those very robust systems and assets in place. You can have the best of both worlds. And so um, not only did Darren's income uh, and therefore value go right up, but he also had the ability to exit a business so he could spend more time in his real creative zone. Um, so I guess that's a pretty cool success story. Oh. There's, there's literally hundreds. People could go yeah. if they're interested in these sorts of transformations. My podcast does all that. So I deconstruct a lot of our clients, but other industry leaders, or if they just Google key person of influence YouTube, there's hundreds of case studies that kind of deconstruct all of those elements. Okay, and we're part of, that's a, congratulations. That's a wonderful story, and I think a lot of us could relate to that because we do we do think and we live and we breathe the business, but it's everything around it that you created. So I love that. So in moving towards closing, because you spoke there about impact, one thing I, I think we share you and I very much in our own personal and business philosophies is is making an impact. So could you just describe to us briefly how you make an impact on the world? Yeah, sure. And look, this comes back to this whole idea of being able to die well, being able to look back and have no regrets. And the thing that I was fortunate enough to learn in my 20s where I made a lot of money and I basically just went and played was that having a lot of money and playing wears pretty thin after about three months. And, you know, there's achievement on one axis, but achievement without fulfillment is wanting. And so I saw this great quote by Bobby Kennedy, which was... I'm paraphrasing, but it's what makes us live a great life is the degree to which we contribute. I think I just butchered that quote, but it's a, it's a wonderful <laughs> quote in the way he says it. And, and I took that to heart and I, and I started looking around for what makes me feel like I'm contributing the most. And if I zoom out and I look in the context of our planet, we're in such a delicate transition. And look, there's lots of incredible things happening with new clean technology and clean energy and you know, huge social change and social progress. In all these different areas, there's so many markers of, of progress and yet there's still so much more to do. And so I came across the UN goals for sustainable development, otherwise known as the, the global goals, which were essentially the UN had created in collaboration with all 197 member states, this to-do list for the planet, like a, you know, well, like a to-do list for your, your business, right? Almost like these are the objectives that if we hit these objectives as a, a global society, we will improve the standards of living for the largest number of people in the shortest number of time. And they've got deadline, you know, the deadline is 2030, the Bill and Melinda Gates foundation donate the infrastructure required to track that progress. So it's a very rigorous and ambitious target with a very high degree of accountability. And so I, I really do believe it's the moonshot of our generation. There's no more important uh, thing to be aligned with than the protection of our planet and the 17 different objectives that range from, you know, supporting life on land to underwater to human rights to, you know, a sustainable infrastructure and cities and like the whole gambit of all of the, the key areas that we need to move the needle on. And I love that so much because I think it gives perspective. It's very easy to say we've got to protect the sharks, you know, but if there isn't a rainforest, well, all the sharks are going to die because there isn't going to be, you know, and et cetera. It's an ecosystem. And and I love the fact that the global goals kind of highlights the ecosystem like nature of what we need to improve. And so 
Um, I'm a big advocate and Dent is a big advocate of connecting people to the goals and allowing them to more deeply connect to therefore a more tactical charity or cause or pro bono opportunity that also serves the goals. And so it can be effective for them. It can be effective for their team. It can be effective for the planet. So we, we tactically support charities all around the world, but the conversation that we're really engaged with is this idea of the, the global goals. Cause I, I really think it's an idea that's time has come. It's also an idea that's very easy to spread. You know, if I have a very strong outlook on sex trafficking, that's sometimes a delicate topic to bring up and you might not want to bring it up with your team or your clients. Or if you do, it kind of creates a bit of a, a, it's a hard pill to swallow for a lot of people. Whereas you can have a very strong commitment to any topic you like, the global goals is very palatable for everybody. And so I feel like if more people are talking about those broad goals and categories of goals and their alignment to said goals, um, I believe that creates a common language that could be very powerful, especially for small business owners looking for ways that we can not just create more, but collaborate more and, and make the world a, a better place. So we're pretty active on that side of things. Brilliant. I love that. I think, you know, if any of you are interested in that, and in fact, I think it's almost compulsory, you should take an hour out sometime over the weekend or, or first thing in the morning and actually just Google a bit of that, have a look there. And, and research those UN goals and see some of those common areas. So, Glenn, imagine talking to you. I, I've really been delighted. I've really enjoyed it. And I think everyone listening as well, we're certainly indebted to you for giving us so much of your precious time. I think everyone um, here will, will join me in saying it's been a privilege having you here, getting an opportunity to get to know the Glenn Carlson. I feel we have dug into your persona, so that was lovely. If people want to learn a bit more, as you mentioned, they can, they can Google Key Person of Influence or... I think Glenn Carlson podcast, what, what would be the best yeah, place to do a bit of research? The best way to, the best way to go, um, we're literally putting up a page on dent.global forward slash start. Um, that will give two very clear pathways. Uh, one clear pathway is to all of the free content we have, whether it's um, or close to free content, which is like the books, the podcasts, the videos, the diagnostic tests and benchmarking that businesses can do to be able to help diagnose their strengths and weaknesses in terms of their ability to influence or the 24 uh, different categories of assets that they have in their business, where they're strong, where they're weak, what they need to build as opposed to what they need to do. All that's free. Um, dent.global forward slash start and you'll have access to all that. The other thing the page does is once people have kind of explored that content, often they want to understand more about how our actual accelerator programs work. There's a more rigorous selection criteria around that because of the level of accountability required and, and kind of focus required. And, and you know, that's where you know, the, the results come from. Uh, but on that page is also information, some video content around how all that works. So that would be the best place to go. If anyone wants to just get in contact with me directly, yeah, just find me on Facebook, pretty easy to find. And uh, otherwise, send me an email, glenn at dent.global. Excellent. Thank you very much. I'll put the information in the email where we distribute this particular franchise radio show. So in just wrapping up, thank you, everybody, again. Really enjoyed having you here. Glenn, it's been wonderful talking to you. Look forward to catching up with you again. And to everybody here, every success in your business. Look forward to talking with you soon with our next Franchise Radio Show. 